This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's all about the people. And this is completely a people business. And it's who the people are and who they're willing to work with and thinking about everybody's needs and having the voices to remind everyone (laughs) of their needs, I think is the way we're gonna go forward and make it better for everyone. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems. Hi, everyone. We are kicking off fall in full swing with a fabulous individual on the podcast today. Elizabeth King. Elizabeth comes to us today from The Hill, where she's been the Democratic Staff Director for the Senate Armed Services Committee since 2015. Prior to that role, she worked in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs, in addition to the various offices of members for Congress. So needless to say, Elizabeth's reputation precedes her. She is an absolute rock star, and we are just thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get into the decisions that you want to discuss today, which is about the inclusion of more women in the Senate Armed Services Committee and the sort of state of where we are on gender diversity and the community as a whole, I would love to learn more about your story. What drew you to this weird world of national security and Congress? It wasn't planned. I was one of these odd folks who, when I was in college, um, I decided when I graduated that I wanted to go to Washington and I didn't know a soul. Some folks said, well, that's like going to Hollywood and waiting to be discovered. But I went and pounded the pavement anyway, and I got a job because I could type, which is something I had learned in high school. In that first office on the Hill, I was assigned to the military legislative assistant for a senator who worked on the Armed Services Committee. So it was my very first introduction into the military issues. And I, even as a, you know, a young staffer, I got to work on a lot of interesting things. And then I, and then I left to go to law school, but after law school, I was drawn back to that same group of people through the Defense-Based Closing Commission. I worked on the 95 Commission. And that kind of cemented the fact that I was really interested in defense and I was really interested in the culture. And so I just went with it and all my jobs from them have been in defense. So you've just been hooked and you've just wanted to stay in your career working on the defense issues, the military yes. strategy. Yes. And, 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 I, and, I and I was always drawn to them and I had opportunities to get, you know, pulled into other issues. But I like the culture and I like national security and I like defense in particular. I actually like the Pentagon for the years that I was there. <laughs> and what I love about it is there's so many facets to it. I mean, even Senator Reid and I, after so many years, will continue to say, Okay, there's a whole other level of information that we don't understand. Um, And then I also, and so there's always something to learn. And I am always wowed by the commitment of the people who are in defense. I mean, you, you just, 
It's not one of those areas you can go in half-heartedly and everyone is is in it and they care about it and they care about this country and that continually like pulls me yeah. pulls me into it. It's amazing how it all really boils down to the people. For all we want to talk about technologies and AI and which are important things, it's ultimately down to the people. <laughs> and well, and I guess that's a great segue to talking about the decision that you wanted to get into today, which you know, here in the podcast, we take time to explore specific decisions that people make and what were the outcomes and the extent to which gender affects the decision and its outcomes. But today we're taking a step back from that. And we're looking at overall, how is gender dynamics, have they, how have they been changing in the Senate Armed Services Committee, in the community as a whole? And so I'd love for you to set the scene for us a little bit. In 2015, you get to be the Democratic Staff Director. What were the dynamics? in terms of gender balance and and what what sort of struck you the most about those dynamics when, when you entered the role I had worked with the committee when I was on Senator Reed's personal staff and I had worked with them when I was in the Pentagon doing legislative affairs but when I came back you know Senator Reed was taking over for Senator Levin so it was going to be a bit of a continuum which was good but even in that with long democratic leadership what I noticed was that I was the first woman staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee on the Democratic side. The Republicans had had two Republican senators. Senator Warner briefly had a a female staff director and Senator McCain briefly had a female staff director. But the vast majority of all of the staff directors and all of the Democratic staff directors had been men. So I was the first woman there. And then of the staff that was there of professional staff members, there was the staff assistant was a female, and there was one professional staff member who was a woman, and the rest were men. It's not that it had always been that way. There had been other women, but just when I walked in the door, that's where it was. And so I, having spent at that point 25 years in the defense arena, wanted to make a conscious effort to get the best people. But if I had an opportunity to bring in a female voice, I was going to try and do that. And now there are seven women on the staff. And most importantly, we have women in in foreign policy, but there is a female graduate of the military academy of West Point who was a colonel. So she had retired. So she had gone all the way through the system and budget person. And so just there's just different, different voices and they're not in the you know, the the soft areas where you would traditionally find women staffers in these areas. And so, and I do believe that they've made a difference. Yeah. Just to take a sidestep for a second, for our listeners who aren't sort of aware of the role you play and the role staff directors play in building these teams and hiring and setting things up. I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about your day-to-day responsibilities, like, and your approach to the job. Sure. So the Armed Services Committee, they are they do the policy oversight of the Department of Defense. And they're an authorizing committee, so rather than a 
appropriations, which does the funding. And the big task every year is to produce the National Defense Authorization Act, which is this year is its 62nd year. And it's the giant thing that I think of every morning when I wake up, if you will get the bill through on the, everyone's like, no one wants to be the person who doesn't let get that bill done. So we were going, we're going to get it done. But that bill, which I think is good, drives the committee's work every year. And so we start with all of the, we do all of the hearings to do all of our oversight. There tends to be two hearings a week. And then we write the bill, we do a markup, in committee, we consider in com- committee, we consider on the floor and then we conference it with the House bill. Mm-hmm. And so that is like the that's the the framework that gets you through the year. Right now, the committee is even there's 13. There's 13 Republicans and 13 and Democrats. And there's a staff for the Republican senators and there's a staff for the Democratic senators. I run the staff for the Democratic side. And what it consists of, there are staff members who are experts in all of the different areas in personnel in the Army, in the Air Force, in space, in intel, in foreign policy, in cyber. So all of those areas have somebody who can go six miles deep on those things. Mm-hmm. I am more of the, a lot of times feel like a train conductor, where I'm the one who steps back, looks at the bigger picture, takes everybody's input and even, you know, it makes sure that it melds into one one message or a theme mm-hmm. that keeps everybody going. So just a sort of maybe frame things slightly, slightly differently. Sure, sure, sure. You're literally at the center of the enterprise. <laughs> like, I'm one of the centers. There's the, a Republican but, center too. But, 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 but I mean, yeah. truly, you touch things and you have this perspective on the national security enterprise that few people do. And the ability to impact it through things like personnel decisions and bringing in new voices. It's just a fascinating Vantage point, I imagine. It it is interesting. I I do believe that one of the, and I've had some mentors tell me this over the years, that I have always been a a bit of a generalist. And I think that generalists are underrated. I mean, because there are so many experts in this town Mm -hmm. that I don't think that many people look at the advantages or the need for someone who can see across. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can always, I can go and touch the person and ask the person to do things that goes six feet down, but there mm-hmm. is something to be said for being able to look across the whole enterprise. And, and the interconnections between yeah. these things. And you're right. It's my observation. We as a town tend to, we like to look narrowly. We like to break down problems into narrow, discrete, solvable things. But generalists have the advantage of, A, understanding that some problems can't be solved, they only get managed, but also the intersections between these different spaces and and finding with both political strategies to to advance things, but also substantive, like, actually, this, this issue here, NATO, affects how we're going to do things in the Indo-Pacific. You get a perspective of how, yes, of how things, of how things fit together and how an overemphasis on one thing can hurt something else. So it provides for an equilibrium. Right, right. So you notice that there is gender imbalances that you decide. Why, in your view, I mean, beyond the sort of demographic, like, this is kind of imbalanced. Why, in your view, was it so important to bring women's perspectives to the table? Which I guess is another way of saying what differences in terms of policy, in terms of substance, did you anticipate would be brought to the table by bringing in these different voices? When I came in, you look to the future and you look to see, you know, we're always Everybody in defense is always looking 20 years out and then spend most of your time dealing with like tomorrow. You try to look forward. And again, the people I hired were were 
the best people for the job, but you also think about, well, can there be a different perspective? Can there be a different way? You know, I think that women's voices would bring a different way of problem solving, a different perspective on it. I mean, there is also something to be said for a lot of the men who were on the committee um, had served in the military. Some of the women that came in hadn't. And that's a difference because it just brings a different, not better or worse, but a different way of approaching the problem. And it also brings in, makes a different team dynamic. It also is a, just in the way it, it worked, necessarily younger, which is also a different perspective. I mean, one of the things I love is that there are committee staffers who've been there for over 30 years, and that brings one advantage, but there's also advantage to somebody who's had other jobs and has is coming in as a female who's has 10 years in and can bring a different perspective. So it's part of the generalist of breaking up the groupthink and not even groupthink because the committee doesn't do that because everyone is is very good at this, but just giving, it's more of the, oh, I hadn't thought of that. The other things that I think that helps is that I do still believe that women are diversity in defense. I do think that the vast majority of the both military and the civilians and the folks who work there are, are male. And and so having women on the committee and women serving on the committee, women senators, they bring up and they think about issues that are different than men. And then they get promoted a little bit more in my very long time that I've been working with Senator Reed. I, I just see it in that in that relationship with him as the senator, me as the staff director, and as his personal senator, of just bringing something up mm-hmm. and having you know him say, "Oh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that," simply because it's not his experience, right? And right. so I think that that makes that makes it, you know, it makes a difference. Yeah, and was there, what issues do you think have come to the fore or been put on the agenda as a result of greater gender equity on the committee? As far as well, definitely with the with the senators, there are many issues of clearly the sexual assault issue. I don't believe would have been gone anywhere near as long as it took. It wouldn't have gone as fast or as far without women, um, without women senators. There's still issues with with contraception parity that they're arguing for. I think the women in the selective service wouldn't have really come up as an issue or as a thought. Women in combat, you know, all the way back when I started on the Hill, there weren't women weren't allowed on submarines. And so I think that just pushing the women's issues and then there's other issues that aren't necessarily women's issues. But I, I noticed when I was in the when I worked in the Pentagon, and it was at a time when there was, a, there was always a review, but there was a big review going on about the benefits that the military personnel got. And there was a lot of senior military leaders in these meetings, and there was a lot of discussion about retirement, and there was a lot of discussion about housing allowances. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I noticed that was missing was a discussion about health care. And what I realized was that it was the spouses who were predominantly women mm-hmm. were dealing with the healthcare issues of oh. the family and the children and the schools and uh-huh. and the you know and the the housing. And it's not that this wasn't important to these senior leaders. They just 
they didn't focus on it. It was a blind spot. Right. And right. so so I think that the, the women senators and women staff have worked very hard, like the schooling and the exceptional needs and certain illnesses and mm-hmm. um, just general healthcare appointments. So you're not, you know, and so I think that, that those are issues that women tend to have been brought up more, certainly more mm-hmm. by the women senators than the actual, just because it's more in there. They've had more experience with it. Right generally than the men. Well, and, you know, when we think about warfare, when we think about the department, again, we like to think about orders of battle and concepts of operations and technologies and widgets. But we keep coming back to it's about people and some of the things that women have been doing, raising these human dimensions of the enterprise and, and how all of the team needs to be treated fairly across the force. And I also think it's it's how you build a team Mm-hmm. too. And that is one of the things that I have tried hard to do is to to think of, as you said, the human element in building the team. And that is not only looking at the professional, their professional aspects, but also looking at personal lives that yeah. personal lives are involved in this. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that is about the, the, the bipartisan nature of the defense bill mm-hmm. and how it's maintained itself as bipartisan. And I believe that one of the reasons for our success is that we are one of very select few committees where everybody sits together. So the Democrats and the Republicans are all in one space. Right. So to me, the team is everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, the humans are everyone. And I believe that that human dimension makes it easier when you to have policy difference, but to treat each other with respect and with dignity mm-hmm. in in the workspace. And I think that that helps, particularly in a time when things are so tense. Right. Oh, my God. Yes. And one thing that has also intrigued me, I'd love to get your sense on the extent to which you think that women in these spaces brings a different perspective to some of the the hardcore national security problems we face. And so the, the example that I that I keep thinking in the back of my mind is of Tammy Duckworth's work to establish the Afghanistan Commission. I, I think it's a brilliantly designed commission. And I and I just w- would love your sense of, you know, whether her positionality as a woman might have influenced that or the and the, the and the composition of the staff that supported her in, in designing it. I do believe that her position as a woman and more importantly as her position as a woman and a veteran and yeah. a and a combat veteran made a very big difference. She she holds everyone on the committee, both staff and centers, I believe, hold her in very high esteem. And her experiences hold a lot of weight. And it was a very important commission to get done because there were a lot of different ways that people wanted to go at this. And I know Congress creates a lot of commissions, but this was one issue that really did need a commission because it was so long and there were so many different elements to it. And there was so much that had to be evaluated. And I think her experience and her ability to push on this really made a difference and got a really well thought out and serious commission Mm -hmm. um, in the works. Because it was, it's designed to really meaningfully understand what went wrong with the yes. with the war at the strategic and operational levels. Yes. And it will take a while. it's going to take 
a long time, but the war took a long time. <laughs> and so, um, right. and so, but I do think that there are huge lessons to be learned from our experience. I do think there is the potential to this really be a, to this commissioned to come up with some, some game changing ideas. And without Senator Duckworth being behind this, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it would have gotten done. Right. And, and especially in the environment, the political environment at the time, because everybody, I mean, I was at CRS at the time and we were all consumed with the departure from Afghanistan and there was so much anger and there's so much, so much hurt. And it was this way to start channeling that energy into something productive that we can learn from. And it is also, again, uh, you know, and, and the other perspective on this, and this is why the commission is good, is it's personal to so many people who work in defense in Washington. Mm-hmm. It was 20 years of my career. It was 20 years of Senator Reed's career. It was, tw- you know, 20 years of General Milley's and, you know, the chairman of the, the Joint Chiefs careers. So everyone has a personal, you know, everyone took it personally. Everyone has a view. Everyone has their own experience of it. And so this is, you know, this is what you need a commission for. This is what you need people to step back and say, okay, let's look at this reflectively and come up with what we did right and what we did wrong. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. So taking a step back to the processes of the committee and how gender has been impacting that, I mean, have you seen other views aired or approaches taken to things like conference or, or hearing design that, well, you think that having women on your staff and women on the committee has enabled? My voice as a woman may just be a different voice is, you know, in working with the military leaders, because there are, again, in the Defense Department, there are women rising up. Um, mm-hmm. And now we have a, a deputy secretary who is a woman. Again, if you look at the hierarchy of the military and how hierarchical they are, is most of most of the military leaders that you they rise up and just because of the nature of women coming into the military, there's no one above them that is a woman. And there's very few who are even to them that are women. And so in these rooms, there aren't female voices. And most of the senior leaders in the military, well, I'm in the room in meetings or I will talk with them. And again, it's an opportunity just to to bring a perspective that they may not have thought of because they're in a room with all men. Well, and it's it's helping address this blind spot, right? Yes. Just, and that they yes. don't know is there. And, you know, there's been so much discussion about building the team, the national security workforce, all of those things. But if you aren't aware of things like the microaggressions that women experience, if you're not aware that the, the culture doesn't always create the conditions for the kinds of policy discourses and discussions that we that we need to see and policy solutions developed. How do you become aware of it? It's by having, having women a voice in, the in the room, right? Yep. Having a voice in the room, right? In your view, are you experiencing any pushback? The origin of that question is: there's a lot of discussion about anti wokeness. All of this stuff is compromise the effectiveness of the force by taking DEI seriously. I'm wondering if that it trickles down in any ways that you're seeing or how it might be manifesting or or not. It, it may not be. So having started working in this area 
in the late 80s, things were a lot better than they than they were. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I risk being one of those people who say, well, in my day, but the but it's so, true. It's but we it, have it, made meaningful progress. We have made we have made meaningful progress. For the most part, I don't deal with the microaggressions, as you said, that I that I used to. Um you know, they're still there, but they're not as, you know, they're not as obvious. And um because I've moved into another realm of being the invisible middle-aged woman, what my fear is is that women's rights are under attack. And I don't think it is as obvious or is it's I, I don't believe it's as noted, but it's there. And that is that is something that I think everyone has to be aware of. And I don't think it gets the same. You know, the anti-wokeness tends to be more on diversity, but it doesn't right. it doesn't cover women like women are considered like a, a group. Right. And so you know, the fact that we're arguing over whether or not women should register for the draft, whether or not women should be in combat positions, what the tests, the the physical fitness tests should be in things that are, you know, in, in, in women's, women's health issues, that those are all argued about. And in some ways we tend to lose a lot of those arguments says to me that there, there, there isn't enough, there aren't enough women's voices on the table. Got it. So I guess to wrap up our conversation, I'd love your sense of where we need to go in terms of the conversation on gender equity and, and in the national security or and, and, and Congress. I mean, we've identified that there are gaps and I think that there's been great work to address them. So where do we go from here? I think it is a continuous it is a continuous process, and despite the what many can see as setbacks at time, that you know we are we are moving forward in a positive direction. Outside of my office, there's the committee pictures through the years, and over by where I get my coffee are the earliest pictures of the 50s and 60s, and so I I, I look at these gentlemen. And then there's Margaret Chase Smith peeking out from the pictures. And so I took a, I studied it and you know she was there in the late fifties to the early sixties. And then there wasn't a woman on the committee till the nineties. It was Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson. And so, and the first democratic woman to be on it was uh, Senator Lander mm-hmm. in 2000. Right. There are now nine women. So it's pushing. You know, mm-hmm. and so with every with every step, there are more women senators on the Armed Services Committee. There are more women, both Democratic and Republican, on the committee staff. And there are more women in the Department of Defense. There's more women flag officers and there's more women coming up the ranks. And so I think with every voice and with every added woman, there gets to be more of a chorus that starts to work. Back in when we were discussing about, you know, women, the intangible, the trade space, one of the things that I've noticed is with a Senate so divided, there are friends, there are always friends, but the, you know, the women, again, they work, the women senators tend to work across the aisle. And I believe that they have relationships. You know, one of the things I think has been lost in present Senate is that senators are too busy and it's too easy to fly that they don't stay around. Mm. But the, the women senators do have relationships outside the offices and they do have dinners together. And I think that that helps. And there is a natural friendliness there or willingness to, you know, to to do something to get to know each other. And I think that that is our path. 
is that, again, as you've said a couple of times, it's all about the people. And this is completely a people business. And it's who the people are and who they're willing to work with and thinking about everybody's needs and having the voices to remind everyone (laughs) of their needs, I think is the way we're going to go forward and make it better for everyone and more inclusive for everyone in the military. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes one Thanks for listening and join us next time. The CSIS Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems.